it's very hard to find the Bible interesting when you don't think it's about you. Just a fact. If the Bible is just something you're supposed to know, or a bunch of facts, or the right ideas, or anything as, frankly, worldly as that, well, it's never really going to inspire you. This book is not exactly a love letter from God to you. I've heard it said that way, and there's something kind of schmaltzy about that. But it really is the actual book the Almighty God made so that you could not die in eternal fire. And so that on the way to not having that happen to you, you can understand what's going on while the rest of the world's going crazy. That's what it's for. But it, it isn't put together the way we put together comic books or the way we put together dogmatics textbooks. Instead, it is put together quite out of order so far as the way we think is. It seems fine when you open it and it says in the beginning, you're like, I can do this, you know. But somewhere around, you know, the fatty portion of the liver or the son of Elon, the son of something, something, I'm not so sure I can do this anymore. And the reason, if you're honest, because you're a human descended from Adam is yet don't think it has any relation to you. The magical formula to loving the Bible is realizing it's about you. And I know I've spent a lifetime saying it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And that's true, too. Those are not opposing ideas. It's because the Bible is about Jesus and Jesus loves you. That therefore, everything that's about Jesus, guess what? It's also about you. The key here, then, is defining out where are the places in the Bible that you can hear that. Because it's tough when you're deep in the book of Numbers, I'll tell you. But this is why I'm all about sonsofsolomon.net. Pray the Psalms. It's really easy to have it be about you. It'll be so about you, will be like, I'm not sure this is right. I feel this about that person in these words. Is that okay? I was told I'm supposed to love my enemies. Ah, right. Which means pray for their destruction, which can be their repentance when God is merciful. Because indeed, as we'll see with Ezekiel today, I mean, to become a Christian is to have your life destroyed. It is to be crucified. It is to lose who you are in who he is and then find that who he is makes you more of who you are than you ever imagined possible because you're not alone anymore. It's not just up to you. You're, you're part of him. You're part of us, right? So learning to see the Bible as about you, not, not about Christ. What about you in Christ? This is what I think today's text from Ezekiel and from Revelation can just marvelously give us. It's very easy, a great way to land from the rainbow on a pot of gold that, that fills all of us far more than the, the petty metal uh, that we base a lot of our monetary systems on. This is the gold that is sweeter than honey. You know, this is the bread that does not fail to satisfy. This is the living water from the side of Christ, right? Uh, this is what you get to eat as a Christian. And, and now we get to see this in some very beautiful pictures uh, from the Old Testament up and from Revelation. 
But as I said a moment ago, let's remember what's happening to Ezekiel at this point when he has this this revelation. Uh, He is a priest who has been taken away in exile from a temple that he's supposed to stay at or serve near all of his life because that's the only place on the whole planet where God actually is working for the good of mankind through a religion. And as a priest, that's his whole identity. He's been told this from knee high to a grasshopper and above. There's no, you don't follow follow your father's footsteps in this place. Oh, no, no, you're a born priest. And this this is like being a king, but not at all like being a king, quite different. And yet he doesn't have that anymore. He's a priest without a temple. The temple still exists, but the vision he's gonna get is gonna show him that it doesn't matter, that temple's coming down. So this whole reality where he ends up like for seven days staring at a wall and some people and not able to talk is because his entire life has been just ripped out through his face. First, he's taken away physically from what he believed life was about. Then he sees it torn down in an instant and revealed as more glorious than he ever possibly imagined. He's still with God. He just doesn't understand how or why, but it's true. This powerful event rocks this man. He's no longer who he was. And this has to be a picture of what it means to become a Christian. To be a Christian is to not be who you were. And some of you I know are like, but I was baptized as a Christian. As a child, as an infant, I was born into it. My whole life I've been a Christian. I don't know when I wasn't a Christian. How can I change? And this is the beauty of Christianity. It's it's new every day. It's new every day. The inherited sin that we have continues to find new ways to kind of leak out of us. And every day we get to grow a little more in what it means to walk under the grace of God who knew all along how bad we were and nonetheless wanted to be among us anyway to make us good again. But that means losing who you were. If you die, you gain your life. If you try to hold your life, you'll lose it. Those are Christ's words. And so to be a Christian means a continual walk of losing your life. You're not going to get your best life in this world. It's not going to happen. No matter what you build, it's going to come down. No matter how healthy you are, you're going to get sick. It's going to happen. But knowing that, not like the rest of the world has got to get as much in right now. They got this much space. Let's squeeze in as much as we can. You don't have to live like that. You got the rest of eternity. I had someone say to me the other day, we don't have all the time in the world. I was like, yes, I do. I actually do because I'm under God. There's nothing I can do that'll be outside of his control. I can try to plan the most efficient day I want. It's only going to go the way he wants it to. When you roll the dice, guess who decides what comes up every time? Jesus does. You're like, I have bad luck. He's like, stop gambling. You know? ah, it's, it's kind of straightforward, right? And by the way, gambling in any place that established itself as a gambling vicinity isn't playing fair and you're going to lose. So there's there's gambling and then there's addictive usury, right? It's just a completely more wicked thing. And we got plenty of that here in Rockford. Let's go on though. The key here is that becoming a Christian means that your identity of old is destroyed, but your identity is renewed to be more glorious than you possibly ever imagined. And yet that means life's not going to be the same anymore. You can't just be ho-hum doldrum about everything in the world anymore. You can't just store up stuff in your barn and hope that it all goes well later. Instead, saying yes to God is going to enact a psychological toll on your soul called being a disciple to the master. And it's a lot like waking up in the morning where you're kind of like, 
okay, I got to get used to this new thing. It's a whole bunch like the matrix. If you've seen the movie where they just yanked the spike out of the back of your head and you're like, whoa, what happened there? And if you know that story, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it is very much like having been dead and not knowing it and suddenly being alive and realizing you're surrounded by a bunch of dead people who don't know it. Christianity is all of those things. And Ezekiel's story here is about kind of where, when, how, and what to expect at the end of this rainbow. So here we go with the actual text, Ezekiel chapter 2, page 693 of your pew Bible. Uh, we're going to pick up with verse 1, where he says, He said to me, this is Ezekiel, God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet. Uh, we could spend an hour on the Son of Man, or more, actually. You could do a whole seminary course on the son of man as a phrase. And this is where it kind of first shows up, but it develops and develops and develops over several hundred years, uh, centuries, until uh, Jesus shows up and uses it to describe himself. Uh, but what we miss in English so clearly is that it doesn't really say man like male versus female. Huh? Um, and it doesn't even really say like man versus beast. It, it more just says Adam, right? Adam, son of Adam. Maybe you read the Narnia books. I think he got that idea somewhere, yeah? Uh, son of Adam, stand on your feet. The idea here is that there is a flesh and blood that is in fact created by God as Adam, and it's still here. And when Jesus claims that as his own title, he's saying something very special about it. He's changing what it means. But at this point, it means fallen. It means broken. It means failure. It means I kicked you out of the land, okay? Now, stand up, he says, and I will speak with you. So he gets a command to stand, which is good. I was dead, now I live. And he spoke to me. The spirit entered into me, set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking. So notice, not by my own reason, nor by my own strength, but by the spirit. I think Luther got that somewhere too. The reason to read the catechism of Dr. Martin Luther is because he quotes the Bible a lot, right? The reason to read the Bible so when you see the Bible in the world, you notice it. You go, oh, that's from, that's from the Bible. Uh, that's one of the reasons is to have this language become who you are. That's what's happening to Ezekiel as he's just being compelled to wake up. Uh, verse 3, he said to me, again, son of man, I send you, think like apostle, right? But here it's really prophet. This is a prophetic call. I send you to the people of Israel. Uh, in, in the um, Hebrew, it would be uh, Ben Israel or Benim Israel, uh, the sons of Israel. Notice the bloodline connection there that you don't get with the word people quite the same way. It's, it's important, the bloodline, the family tree, right? Uh, but notice what he calls this uh, not yet a Jewish people, still, still Israel of old, but Judah as a nation. He calls them uh, a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, and notice God is in all capitals. That's the holy name Yahweh there, right? So the Lord Jesus Christ says this to Ezekiel. Um, the call and the sending 
that comes with being a Christian means you're going to go talk to people who don't think what you think, who don't believe what you believe, and they're not going to understand you. And that's a normal part of being a Christian, that you're surrounded by non-Christians. We had it really amazing for like 200 years. There was like nothing like it in history, but it's over now. We're surrounded by non-Christians. That's normal. And when you speak to them, they're going to make funny faces at you. It actually is going to say that here in the text. But before we go further, I want to just focus on the word impudent and stubborn. It's kind of cool in the Hebrew. One of those is outward and one of those is inward. One of them is literally brazen of face. Scary looking, right? And then the other one is hard-hearted, Outward, brazen of face, inward, hard-hearted. That's who mankind is when Christ hasn't woken him up yet. And man says, why only Jesus? I don't understand. And you try to answer and they say, I don't understand. And you can't even get a word in because they are brazen-faced and hard-hearted, impudent, and stubborn. That's who I wake you up to see you were. That's who I call you to no longer be. That's who you can know you are not because you are born again in Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord. And verse five then, whether they hear or refuse to hear, Paul uses the language in season and out of season. For they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. This is so key. Right? Like when someone comes to church or you talk to someone about Jesus, you natively want them to believe and be saved. That's normal. And I would suggest it's actually selfish uh, because it, it trumps God a little bit. He gets to be the one who cares more than you, right? They're not saved. You're like, God, I'm praying to you. Why won't you save them? And he, and he's, he gets to be the one who decides. And so again, there's a little bit of a selfishness in there. I don't mean stop. You can't stop being who you are. But what I do mean is that when you talk to somebody about Jesus Christ, indeed, we hope that they repent and believe, as does God, but we also know that many of them will not do so. And nonetheless, on the last day before the judgment throne of God, when the words are read and they say, it's not fair, I didn't get a chance, God's going to be like, "Uh, no, there was a a prophet among you. And they're going to be like, oh yeah, I remember that. That's what this means, right? That the church is always going to be against the world. Not friends with the world, not in love with the world, not riding harmony on the back of the world. That's what the harlot does. The church is going to be under assault by the world and a lot of times by really mean faces and hard hearts, which I think you can can feel, right? You know what that's like. Uh, So verse six now. So highlight this one or write this one down for you, right? You son of man, you fallen person who I call Christian, Be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. That's pretty rough right there. (laughs) Yeah. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed by their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Right? Look, if they're not a Christian and they get all mad and do a bunch of weird stuff, you're not supposed to feel bad. You really don't have to. That's like feeling bad for the scorpion. Don't feel bad for scorpions. I mean, honestly, if you find a scorpion in your garage, you could catch it and put it in a jar. You can make tequila with it. Did you know that? But you could also just kill it and not feel bad about it at all. It's a scorpion. Kill it, you know? (laughs) And so this is the idea that when you're not a Christian and judgment comes around, it's not like, oh, they almost made it. It's like, look at the orcs. Look at the goblins. Look at the zombies. Thank God we're not them anymore. 
And you can begin to believe that now with mercy as your motive. Look at the zombies. Look at the orcs. Would that they would turn from their wicked ways and live. Oh, Jesus Christ, I will pray then for my enemies, right? Cast them down. And if that means upon the cornerstone so that they rise up, good. And if it, they're just going to be cast down to be a, an instrument of God like Pharaoh, well, good. Right? Good. Do not be dismayed when those who are falling and refuse to be saved don't like you. Don't be dismayed. The, the judgment of a fool is a petty thing. Verse 7, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. True doctrine endures. You don't change what the church teaches. And there's a Reformation movement alive and well in the Roman Catholic Church. Did you know that? Uh, because in Vatican II, uh, which is a council in the 60s, all the 60s, what good they wrought, yeah? Uh, a council called Vatican II, it changed things a lot, like uh, stopped having Latin-only mass. And there's a whole group that really thinks that that means that the church is no longer the church anymore and needs to be reformed. What they're finding is the Pope doesn't agree with them. It's just a funny story. I've heard it before somewhere, right? Uh, and, and yet, as they go, uh, what they are doing is they are striving to be the church, to speak the word, even if others don't like it, even if others run away from it. Call, call it names, uh, spit and throw spite at it, right? Verse eight, you, son of man, hear what I say. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And there's the setup for the part we've, we've kind of focused on in the readings. I looked and behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book in it. And it would have looked like a scroll. They didn't have bound books at that point, but it would have looked like a scroll. Imagine like it's got, you know, runes by Dorvin elves all over it. And, you know, that's what Hebrew looks like actually. And it's glowing and has kind of rainbow fire coming out of this thing. And it's in this God man's hand coming down to him, right? And he says, uh, um, well, no, first he spreads it out, verse 10, and the writing on the front and on the back there, these three words are written, and I'm going to take a moment, we have the time, I think, to go find the card on these three words, because they are uh, really cool Hebrew concepts. Um, let's see, the English here in your, your ESV says, lamentation and mourning and woe. That's pretty good. Uh, lament and woe are, are about the best English, um, but there's there's more of those words even in English than we normally would give them credit. They're different than each other, that is, right? These aren't three things that are exactly the same. They're three things that are quite different, but all relate to each other. Yeah? And so the first one, uh, Kanim, a lament, this is like a dirge. It's an actual song that is meant to be sad and feel horrible while you sing it. And to the level that the way they sang it before Western music was mostly by wailing in discord together. <laughs> For like hours. Okay. That's the first word written in big glowing fire letters. Is that? Okay. Scary idea if you think about it. The second one, um, Haga, uh, I like the English growl that captures muttering, moaning, and sighing. <laughs> so we're, we're, ah, ah, those are our two words so far, right? And then, and then, uh, he, which you know in Greek as uai, that you hear as oh, whoa, whoa, right? Uai from the Hebrew, then he, but whoa, 
Whoa is like, it's the F-bomb. I don't know how else to say it. If you really think about the way the word woe was used, it's a word that's so bad you would have to just make dots and squiggles of sound to describe how shouting curse you are. You've seen this in comic books, right? Or in comic strips. They put the little exclamation point, question mark, number, sign, star, squiggly, squiggly, right? That's this word. You know? Or, 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 or whatever you do when you hit your thumb with a hammer. So, wailing, growling, and exclamations of sheer horror and pain are written on this scroll. And, and then he says, verse three, verse one of verse three, um, hey, eat it, dude. No, no, really, just eat it, really. I mean, it's okay, it'll be fine. Right, I mean, I heard a story about uh, higher things this past week where some of the, the boys decided to like, you guys, you know this story, right? What goes in the Gatorade? First, maybe just a little salt. And some pepper, some mustard, a little Tabasco. Hey, who can drink this with me? And it happened. All the boys had their little, like, standing contest with the drinking gross thing. Here, drink it. It's good for you, right? And they did it. And it was strong manhood. And the girls got excited. They joined in. They followed the boys. So there's something to a, a power, a great man saying to you, do this hard kind of disgusting thing, right? There's actually something really natural about that. Why do they call it Hell Week before football? There's something powerful here. And yet at the same time, we got to see that Christianity is no different than the rest of this. Christianity is not cupcakes and spice. It is not. It is a book of woe and lamentation that God says, eat it. And then when you eat it, something very unexpected happens. Yeah. Uh, Be not like the rebellious house. He says, open your mouth. Eat what I give. I look to the hand. There it is. The scroll spread before me. I already read that part. Verse two of chapter three. I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. It's on the man, feed your belly. I ate it. It was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he goes on to talk about, you know, the people that you're being sent to. Uh, We're going to leave that and jump over to Revelation 10 to continue this thought about the sweetness of honey once you eat it. John has the same idea, but in a different order. And I want to insist then that these things stay together. If you just read Ezekiel, what some teachers will do is they'll say, well, it was, it looked bitter. It looked bitter, but when you ate it, it was sweet and it was all fine. Well, that's not how John has the experience, okay? So so let's put John's experience together, and then I'll try to tie the meaning together to close this up here. So chapter 10 of Revelation starts in uh, on page 1033 of your pew Bible. I'll get these guys out of the way here. Uh, And we're going to start with uh, verse 8. Uh, near the bottom of the right-hand column, again, there's this mighty angel, the rainbows around his head. He's got bronze legs and all this stuff, and, and this is Christ archetyped. This is Christ, the man risen and ascended with all the glory. No angel compares to him. Verse 8, the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And do remember, if you haven't already, that there's already been a scroll in this revelation to St. John held by a lamb who's been slain and has the power to open its seals. And at this point, those seals have been opened. So now this book being given by the angel, again, is coming from the lamb. I'm at pains to say it's not an angel, right? It's, it's the word angelas, messenger. I saw a mighty messenger clothed with the sun, a rainbow as it's crowned. I mean, Jesus, the final apostle, comes down. 
and in his hand is a book, and the book is no longer sealed. The book is open. And so John's like, bold. He goes, I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. Hey, you giant burning fire creature, give me that. You know, uh, That's the confidence to approach the mighty one. You have this. Say the name of Jesus Christ out loud. Next time you're in trouble, approach the Holy One. Jesus Christ, help me. As Jesus Christ lives, that hurt my finger. As Jesus Christ lives, I don't want to be here anymore. As Jesus Christ lives, will you change this for me, God? Call out to him. He will answer. He will. Uh, Here, John says, give it to me. And oh man, the overlapping beauty of take and eat, yes? I mean, was there, I don't want you to raise your hand, but did anybody here not think about the Lord's Supper? I mean, we're Lutherans. I I hope anytime you hear take and eat anywhere, you're like, oh, that's a reflection of how God has bound me to Jesus' body and blood forever. Take and eat. It will, he warns him this time. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from his hand and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must prophesy again. And recall how after Ezekiel finishes his vision and goes and sits for those seven days, he says, I was bitter in spirit and the hand of God was heavy upon me. So here John is told the exact same thing. And then he goes ahead and he does it. He turns his stomach bitter. What are we to make of this? This is valuable, I think. This is like, I've been working toward this last few minutes for three weeks now. And it is this, is that God knows it's hard to read his Bible. He knows your flesh is weak and doesn't want to. He knows that your stomach fights against you doing the right thing all the time. He knows that bitterness rests in your flesh and that it does need to die. It has to be mortified on some level. It just has to be told, deal with it. It'll only be bitter for a while. And the way that it's told that is honey on the lips. Oh my, when you sing the name of Jesus Christ and you know what those words mean and you hear of that amazing grace, right? It's honey on the lips. You've had this experience. I don't feel like reading the Bible today. I open the Bible anyway. I read the Bible. I go, that was so worth it. That's it right there. Take and eat the book. Makes your stomach bitter, but it's gold on the tongue. And it is the gold at the end of the rainbow that God has put there not only for Ezekiel and for John, but for you. And so again, I want you to see that you are both of these individuals now pressed forward through the unifying head, Jesus Christ, to be his called awake prophet wherever you go today, tomorrow, and the rest of your lives. Not because you have magical powers to tell the future or you can do miracles whenever you feel it, but you know that the name of Jesus Christ is powerful, that his word cannot be broken, and that when you speak it aloud, the angels fight for you. They do. They hear it. They rejoice. I was pondering it this morning just a little bit as I was praying. I pray every morning. I try to. I don't want to miss it at this point. It used to be hard. Now I starve without it. That's the way it works. You get the exercise. The muscle gets stronger. But I was just imagining what it must look like to the angels to see American Christianity uh, just growing cold. Yeah. I mean, that is what's happening as we divide and fight over a whole panoply of things. And as congregations basically enter into a sales market competing for 
membership, which is, is really you know, the, the market share of those who are willing to pay for a club that talks about Jesus. And we've been set against each other in this way so that we're all kind of pressing in on and, and trying to claim for ourselves you know, power while the church, again, just dies. While fewer and fewer people under 40 are there. Or if they're there, they're kind of at the best social club in town and only until they get married. And most of them don't stay in church after their 30s. This is just the way that it is. What does that look like, though? Can you imagine it like a, can you, you know, can I tell a fantasy story? There's no elves. But just imagine that when you become a Christian, you glow for the angels. No one else sees it, but you're just, you glow, right? So we're all, it's, it's bright in here right now. Like there's a lot of light. Yeah, um, And especially because the spirit of God just got poured into you like oil by the word. And so you all went from like kind of glowing to like, there's actually a lot of fire in the room right now, right? But then when you go out in the world from the word and you don't have the word in your life again, that fire, again, it, it, it's there, but it, it dwindles and it, it dwindles and, and it dwindles. It grows cold. And can you see how in, in many of these buildings around our country where there were roaring fires? I mean, I just drove past First Lutheran again the other day. I mean, that, was, that place was huge. They weren't always completely against the word of God. You know, it was only in these latter days that that's happened. What happened to the fire? You know? and, and remember this, someone shared this with me this week, and it's such a wonderful verse. Our God is the God who sees a faintly glimmering wick, and he does not snuff it out. He fans it into flame. And here we are again, right? But imagine it, that there are Christians out there in this world who go to church every week and don't get the word of God. And their light's just getting dimmer and dimmer day by day, week by week, year by year. And guess what you can do without them ever having to join St. Paul Lutheran Church or put a dime in our coffers? You can give them the hope and the light of Jesus' name. You can do that. What others who have been talking to people in our neighborhoods recently, we, some of us have been really trying to do this, have found, is we meet a lot of Christians, like lots of them. And they're very different. They don't definitely don't speak Lutheran. <laughs> yeah? And so it's, it's helpful to listen to them more than try to talk sometimes because they, they say a very different dialect of Christianity. But if you listen long enough, you'll be able to throw an amen in. And you'll be able to say something like, well, God has a plan, right? Or Jesus loves you. I mean, the really easy ones, right? The ones that maybe they haven't heard for a long time. And you're like, but we all know this. Yeah, we all do know it, but we don't all hear it because we're busy getting yelled at by a million other messages. Huh? And the light grows dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And a rainbow around the head of Jesus Christ lands upon your heart and you're awake in his name. Amen.